Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change. Today, I'm joined by author and public archivist, Stephen G. Fullwood. Originally from Toledo, Ohio, he majored in commercial art in high school. He earned his bachelor's degree in English and Communications from the University of Toledo and his master's in Library Science from Clark University in Atlanta. Before attending graduate school, he worked as a children's librarian in the Toledo Library System. He's published articles, editorials, and chapbooks of his own poetry. In 1988, he began learning how to be an archivist to arrange, describe, and catalog collections. He was the archivist who founded the In the Life Archive at the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture, a part of a New York public library. As a writer, his published works include Black Gay Genius, Answering Joseph Beam's Call, co-edited with Charles Stevens, To Be Left with the Body, co-edited by Cheryl Clark, and Carry the Word, a bibliography of black LGBTQ books, co-edited with Lisa C. Moore. His nomadic archivist project documents and preserves the African diasporic experience. This initiative partners with organizations and institutions, along with individuals, to establish, preserve, and enhance collections. Stephen is also the Vice President of Fire and Ink. Fire and Ink is recognized as the most influential supporter and advocate of LGBTQ writers of African descent. Stephen, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? I'm doing really well. Thank you for having me on your wonderful show. You don't know, you have been on my radar for a while. Um, Before... (laughs) I saw you at an Esteem Award the year before I had been talking with Stephen Maglott, who did the Ubuntu Project, and we were talking about people who knew things, and he was telling me at some point that I needed to talk to you because of your archiving and what you knew. He said, you know, what you do is just this wealth of information. And then it was funny, I saw you at the Esteem Awards, and you were in a suit, then I saw you at Fire and Ink, and you were real casual. And it's like the many faces of Stephen, which is like so cool, you know, and to see you in, in all, these, all these different things. And then to find out that you're from Toledo. Born and raised. That's yeah. right. That's right, which has a great museum and a great zoo. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And some great people, according to me, because my family's there and my friends are there. And um, uh-huh. I had a really wonderful childhood growing up, so it was a good experience. Uh-huh. Do you get back there often? Not as often as I'd like to, so, um, uh-huh. but maybe once or twice a year. I definitely do our um, family, family um, reunions, the Houstons, my mother's side of the family, every August. And although I don't go back for holidays, I typically go back for weddings um, uh-huh. and that sort of thing, and birthdays sometimes. Uh-huh. You know, I was, I was particularly intrigued that you started out, you know, you studied library science and that you were a librarian. And I don't know mm-hmm. if, if, if you remember, but do you remember that, that episode of The Twilight Zone where the guy, <laughs> he wanted all the books, and then when he got someplace and there were all these books and then his glasses broke? <laughs> so I, I saw a clip of that, and I also read about it in somebody's article, and I just thought it was so hilarious, you know, so, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, you know, because, I mean, I, I, I know that I, I've seen it, like, I want to say on, on Netflix or something, and I've seen it a couple of times, but, you know, that was me as a kid. I always thought that the greatest thing would to be mm-hmm. in a library with all these books because, you know, you read a book, you can go anywhere, you can be anywhere, you can oh, yeah. expand your thing. So what was your introduction to the library, and what made you decide that you wanted to actually study library science? So libraries came into my consciousness when I was seven years old, and I was a first grader, and I was going to nativity, um, nativity grade school, essentially, and it's not too far from where I grew up on the south side of Toledo, and I remember going into the library because, you know, you're, you always had to have a buddy, so you had to stand there with your buddy and hold his or her hand. And I remember walking into Mott Branch Library, which is the library I ended up working at for three years as a children's librarian from, like, 1993 to the end of 1995. I remember walking in and standing there. We were being told what the library was and why we needed to go, and it was really important. It was full of books and all this wonderful stuff. And I remember looking at a – a, um, a book display for a hero ain't nothing but a sandwich. <laughs> and I remember looking at it, and there were a lot of books there, and the, it said, A Hero Ain't Nothing But a Sandwich by Alice Childress. And I was a little smart mouth. And was, you know, I was typically <laughs> thought I knew what I was talking about all the time, so nothing has changed. <laughs> and I remember looking at it and going, oh, they spelled her name wrong. It's supposed to be children, but it says children. It should be our <laughs> children. <laughs> so that was my very first. Um, that was my very first memory of a library, and from there, I remember wanting to go to the library when we were in class. So if we had a library break, it was always fun for me because I'd go find my favorite book or find other books and read them, or just sit there. And I'm just happy to be in that environment. I had no idea um, most of my life because I. I kept going to the public library as a preteen, a teenager, even after I graduated from high school, I had no idea I'd end up becoming a librarian. I actually um, went to school to become a broadcaster. Mm. And so librarianship came to me because I was volunteering for the library when I was in um, college at the University of Toledo, and I was studying English writing and communications broadcasting. That was the major then. And I remember having 
um, the great opportunity to be an intern at the WTOL television station. And what I, what I discovered was is how much I really, really did not want to become an intern <laughs> at, a, mm-hmm. at a television station. I was like, this isn't what I want to do. I was a production assistant, and by divine intervention, I re- so my um, boss at the time was ready to hire me. I was about to graduate from college, and this was December 1992. And the day I was to be interviewed by him, his wife went into labor, <laughs> and he wasn't able to conduct the interview. So I walked in, they told me, I left the station, and I went to the library. And as a volunteer, I ran into one of the um, library um, staff members who said, oh, what are you going to do after college? And she, I said, well, you know, I think I'm going to work at this television station. And she's like, well, you know, there, is a, there are positions here at the library. You should consider doing that. I ran, not once, <laughs> ran down the hall to – HR and walked in and said, I'm very interested in the position of the children's librarian at that very same library that I went to as a seven-year-old. And she goes, well, do you have any um, experience with children? I was like, nope. And she says, do you have any experience with children's literature? I was like, you know, when I was a kid, yeah. <laughs> I said, but if you, hire, if you hire me, I'll be the best children's librarian you ever had, the best. And so I was interviewed shortly thereafter, and Maybe very, very quickly I was hired, like maybe I want to say either January or February 1993, shortly after I graduated. And I was just really excited by the position. I was, it, was, it was wonderful because I got to work with children. I got to work with a wonderful staff. I was in my own community. I was happy because there was this, within the first year of my being there, they had a, my branch library had a sterling reputation for serving its community. So they had high stats when it came to circulation. They had a number of, they always had programs there. And so people expected, that was their library. That was one of the best uses um, and examples of what a library should do. Mm. And so it was written up in the local paper, the Toledo Blade. And I cut my teeth learning library science, even though that wasn't my major in college. And shortly after, I, I would say about two years into the job, I realized that if I wanted to go anywhere, I needed to actually get the master's in library and information studies and science and whatnot. And so I decided to apply for an MLS at, the, um, at Clark Atlanta University. And it was the first time I would, I would have left Toledo. <laughs> I did left, left Toledo to live somewhere else. You know, they, they gave me scholarships. I went down there for two years. I had the most amazing time in Atlanta. It was, again, a warm, a warm community that embraced me on various levels as a black mm-hmm. queer man, as a, library, a, a student of library and information science. Um, during the summer, I worked at the Library of Congress um, on a fellowship, and I just had the best experience thinking about what libraries and archives could do for people, for black people. And again, I was always in the right space at the right time. Mm-hmm. And so this last story, I'll tell you just before I make it to okay. the Schoenberg. <laughs> uh-huh. I was, I was um, in 1997, I was a student member of the American Library Association student chapter on campus. And they, the chapter was going to sponsor 10 students to go to the, um, the annual conference in San Francisco. Um, there were 10 students, and I was number 11. 
Mm-hmm. Someone lied, lied on their application, <laughs> and I was given that person's spot. And the only thing I wanted to do, Michelle, was to go to San Francisco, find Howard Dotson, who was then the chief of the Schomburg Center, give him uh-huh. my resume, and say I want to work there. Because I decided that although I liked Atlanta, I wanted to live in New York City with my best friend and my kid, and so who uh-huh. was there already. So um, I found Howard Dotson. I didn't know what he looked like. This was the, just as the Internet was taking off. Uh-huh. So I went to all the black booths at um, American Library Association. <laughs> I went to the Ebony booth, and they were like, I said, was Howard Dotson here? Oh, yeah, he just left. He went around to Black Enterprise. And, you know, so I was just running from booth to booth. Finally found the man, tall, quiet, unassuming, and he's talking with um, somebody else. I'm standing there shaking. He's got a suit on, and I'm trying to look like, you know, you know I don't want to bother them, but at the same time, I would like a job. So what he did was he reached out his hand that, in a way that you do to, I know that you're there. Don't leave. I just want to finish this thought. And so mm-hmm. he finishes this conversation. I don't remember what I told the man. I gave him a resume, and I'm sure I said, I would love a job. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm graduating in December of 1997, and I would love to, to have a job. And so what ended up happening, he gave my resume to my um, now former boss, Diana LaChatonier, who is the most amazing archivist on earth. And she um, pre-interviewed me at the – Black Caucus of American Library Association's conference that year in um, Salem, Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And around December, I, was, I kept calling her and saying, is the job open, job open yet? And the job happened to open. Mm-hmm. And by, Janu- by February 6th, I was working at the Schomburg, 1998. Yeah. <laughs> okay, now I have a question. Did you Surely. ever, have you ever gone back and met that child that was born, that kept you, that, that launched you on this trajectory? That was a great question. So while I was talking about it, I had a brief moment where I was like, well, I, had, I don't even remember the name of my supervisor. But <laughs> I think I, if I felt like I, could, I would go back to WTOL and try to cajole them into finding I was working in and see if they had records from 1997, excuse me, 1995, and to see because that kid got – got me set. That kid set. Mm-hmm. came into the world to say, you got to go over here. You got to do this. The guy who lied on his application, he's like, Stephen's got to go to California and he's got to get this job. So I feel really, um, I know it was divided because everything seemed to fit for me when it comes to mm-hmm. librarianship and archives and uh, memory work. And I'll talk a little bit about that later and what that, what that means to me. And so in the right place at the right time, I have a desire to work with the community in a variety of ways. I'm very interested in saving culture, creating culture, and um, for black and brown folks to understand what's at stake here when it comes to their archival um, records. Now, you know, you and I share something, too. I mean, when, mm-hmm. I, was, when I was like your age, so every, and even earlier than that, because, you know, every Saturday my mother took us to the library, you know, and okay. I mean, and, and later on, I realized that she said sometimes we went to the library because we didn't have a television, but we could read a book, you know. And, yes. and, mm-hmm. and I've always loved books and done that. How important, mm-hmm. and I know that you did a children's library. We have a children's library here. How mm-hmm. important is it that kids still have that library experience, you know, and mm-hmm. because you, you wonder, I know, like, 
I've read at our children's library because it's just something great about it. And I've done things at um, it's um, a shelter that also uh-huh. has a library. And when you see the look on these kids' faces, they said, I can have this book. I can take it with me and read it. Yes. But yes. how important is the children's library? And what do you see is happening, particularly in our community, to support mm-hmm. children's libraries and getting kids into books? Okay, so to answer the first question, um, people matter, and, in, and we, I think those of us who recognize it and value that know that the computer is fine, the Internet is great, but it's all a tool. So what I learned working as a children's librarian is that immediate feedback that you get from someone looking you in the eyes, reading you a story, right, or doing a mm-hmm. puppet show, or there were times when we would create um, community celebrations around Africa or the Caribbean, and we would, folks would come in and kind of taste the food or see the books that they would display or the exhibitions or the presentations. And it was a way to kind of be together in a space. Libraries are one of the last places you can go for free, right, and mm-hmm. to get information. And information – you know, historically has been held from people of African descent in this country. And con- mm-hmm. in a way, it still is. And so, you know, obviously it was against the law to teach someone who was enslaved. We don't say the word slave. We say enslaved because no one had a right to mm-hmm. enslave you. And it was illegal to own another human being, no matter what the laws say. I just want to get that out there. <laughs> to be enslaved, and, and, and there's a whole history around a suppressed history around how people who were enslaved fought against that system. There's a wonderful book by Vincent Harding called There's a River, and they talk about Mm -hmm. the different river of resistance that has been happening since before we even came to Turtle Island, to America. Big deal. Mm -hmm. And so, Mm -hmm. anywho, information, um, it informs the imagination, and so when you're sitting with a child or you're sitting with children and you're, you know, sharing a book or sharing information with them on some subject that they might be interested in or they've been told they needed to come to the library to find a book to do a book report, that's a wonderful relationship. That's an amazing relationship that I think will always stay with me. And I do volunteer from time to time, and I used to love it when kids would come into the Schomburg because – they rarely do. I mean, they would come to not to the research divisions because they were more for adults, but I love having kids there to look at different aspects of African-American Afro-diasporic history. So whether mm-hmm. it was in a statue, a photograph, a painting, or music, or some kind of activity where they can be involved, that's the kind of work that I want to do for the rest of my life, and then some, mm-hmm. <laughs> because mm-hmm. that community, I know what it meant to me when I was growing up to see my mother read and see my father read, and to be around music and to have a rich cultural experience in Ohio. And I know that there are times when, like I knew nothing about Africa. You know, we got um, Mutual Omaha's Wild Kingdom, you know, (laughs) stuff like that, right, or Tarzan movies. We didn't, you know, the first Africans I met, the continental Africans I met were um, at the University of Toledo, and they just had different stories to tell us. And we were like, wow, you're all the way from Africa, like, Wow, you know, and so the library opens up all, can open up all those kinds of worlds through books, magazines, photographs, archives, and so forth. And so 
I think, it's a, I think our communities are diverse communities. So some communities see the value in libraries and see the value in that kind of informational exchange. And there are some communities that may, don't do it as much and feel like, oh, well, we've got the Internet now and it's got everything on it, which is completely untrue and will always uh-huh. be untrue because <laughs> of so many different things around access and copyright and so forth. The thing is, I think people are starting to understand now that we've had the Internet for like what was 95, 96, that there's nothing like being in someone's presence. Mm-hmm. It's valuable. You learn how to be a human with other humans. Online, mm-hmm. you can hide behind, <laughs> you know, an avatar. You can hide behind a persona. But when you're eye to eye with someone, it doesn't mean that you can't lie or put on a face, but there's something about that rich cultural exchange that, can, that really is healing for the body and necessary for the body. So children need to have libraries just to be in a space where the, the name of the game is to learn. The name of the game is to explore. The name of the game is to, is to engage your imagination. Mm-hmm. So for for anyone who feels like libraries are old hat, I'll say this. There, was a, um, there were librarians and archivists as well as other people who felt like the Internet was going to put every book online or put everything online that exists everywhere, so you had no need to go to the library. Well, here it is. Our digital collection, well, the Schomburg's digital collections. I feel like I always will be a part of Schomburg. Uh-huh, sometimes uh-huh. they'll be our. So, Libraries like the Schomburg and other um, libraries put a lot of digital materials up online. And if in anything, library, attended, library attendance increased. More people wanted mm-hmm. to come in and see that book, that Harriet Tub- – I mean, that um, – that, uh, gosh, it will give me a second. There's so many books in my head right now. Um, Phyllis Wheatley book, or they wanted to come in and see – that Slave Fugitive Act poster or that Malcolm X poster or those James Baldwin archives. People want to see these things and touch them. And there's something to be said for touching. There's something to be said for seeing the actual article, which you cannot get in a digital experience. You get another kind of experience which engages the other part of your brain, right? Um, so there, and then there are exhibitions where you come in and you go, I didn't know that Lorraine Hansberry's papers, famous playwright who died at the age of 34, who wrote A Raisin in the Sun and other plays. She's got an amazing, amazing archive at the Schomburg Center. And, mm-hmm. and you can see the breadth and the, and the depth of her thinking and how important it was for her to have, um, to, to do this work, you know, in diaries and essays and all these other forms she wrote in other than plays. And there's nothing like researching someone's life who you connect with, either artistically, spiritually. You might, you know, she was um, a lesbian woman, lesbian woman. She was a black woman, and she was a communist. (laughs) She was Uh all these Uh wonderful things that you can learn history in school in the flat way in which a lot of our history is told doesn't really, they, you know, they only mention, the, you know, the empire, the empirical folks who come in and mm-hmm, do whatever. Mm-hmm. And occasionally a little Malcolm X, occasionally a little MLK, but the five black people they talk about in February. Uh-huh. You know, the same five. And I'm not even going to name them because I don't care. Yeah. I don't care what they do. I um, am an agent <laughs> to, to remind folks of the beauty and the wonder and the amazingness that we are still here mm-hmm. despite that. 
So we are the promise mm-hmm. and the imagination and the, the joy of our ancestors. And so our, what we do here needs to push those generations coming up. And libraries yeah. and knowing your history is a big part of that. And so mm-hmm. libraries, you know, you're not going to find – there are some amazing librarians and archivists who they're indispensable to not just students doing research, but they just have a lot of what my, one of my former bosses called information by default because they're working with those all the time. So, oh, yeah, you know, that book is over there, or no, 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 it's 1972, it's not 1973. They corrected it in that book. Mm-hmm. have all this bit of information. And the best of your librarians and archivists, they are the most amazing people you will ever meet. <laughs> and mm-hmm. they usually do one or more things. They're a librarian and they're a rock star or they're a librarian and they are an amazing cook or, you know, they own a business over here on the side. So you scratch a librarian or scratch an um, archivist, you'll find a really dope person. Well, we're going to take our first break. And when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about that. We got you into archiving and the importance of it. So we will be right back. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. on Collections by Michelle Brown. If you're just joining me, I'm talking with Stephen G. Forward. He's an archivist. You know, Stephen, when mm-hmm. I was listening to you talk, I, was, um, I talked to a mutual friend of ours last year, mm-hmm. Eric Darnell Pritchard, and he yeah, had written yeah. this book. And one of the things that he and I had talked about, like, you know, like you said, how they didn't want us to read, but we had talked mm-hmm. about also how we've always been literate and how literacy has been like oh, a, a, a curse and a blessing. Like they had said, well, you couldn't do this if you couldn't read and write, but we're not going to let you read and write, you know, because right. it right. will we'll punish you. But, you know, we've always had a way of communicating and sharing messages and telling stories. And isn't mm-hmm. that also what sort of leads you into archiving? That's part of the way that mm-hmm. we share and collect and save our stories. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And I also I want to make it clear that archi- archivists do this work, a lot of the archivists do this work because they feel called to do it, and mm-hmm. they feel moved to do it, and they sometimes um, fields come and ask you, like different um, fields, or like, oh, no, no, you're a doctor, no, 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 you're probably a lawyer, or because of some personality or quality that leads you to want to organize or to take and shape information so that it's make to make it available for other people, for wide audiences. Archivists though, most of us are archivists on, on, on some level. Just think of your house as an archive. 
it has all these things in it, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, yeah, uh-huh. and not just the sort of media that you're picking up, but it's your clothes, it's how you arrange things, it's your family histories, it's your business records, it's you know the pack of the stack of bills over there that you got to get to, it's the way you've arranged your life, and I w- want people to understand that that this is a wonderful thing, your life, and it's unique, and it doesn't matter whether you are Frederick Douglass or if you are. Lorraine Hansberg, it doesn't matter. <laughs> this is your stuff, and your history matters. And it matters, to, should matter to you, possibly to your relatives. If you have children, fine, them as well. But it's the ways in which we transfer information through both the oral tradition and our, phys- our physicalness, these physical photographs, or now our digital lives as well, you know, the digital photographs and these other things that we pass along. We are very fortunate to live in a time where there's so much information because it's challenging. It, it challenges us to decide what's important and what's not and through trial and error, of course. And so we shouldn't be so, oh, there's just so many channels. There's so much stuff to, no, 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 boo. What strikes you <laughs> as being uh-huh. necessary and important, flow with that because that might be, you know, what you have to offer this world, you know? And so, I think I told, I don't even know if I answered your question, so I apologize if I haven't. No, no, but, um, no, you're good. But I really want well, you, um, folks go ahead. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, um, I had the the privilege of uh, working with James and Grace Boggs. You know, in fact, I think it was I uh, the year was right the year before Jimmy died, and mm-hmm. their house was like I mean they have papers upon papers, and we're sitting there, and yeah. you know Jimmy says. And I remember when Malcolm sat in that very chair, and he said this, and it's right. like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. And like you said, that is history. And yeah. they had papers upon papers, and, like, I know that when he passed, he, I mean, they had notes of meetings and things that they took and they've saved and that other people have benefited from them. But like you said, it's just the things that are around you. It wasn't a fancy chair. It wasn't a throne. Right. It wasn't right. anything. But it was that chair where he remembered – where he and, you know, Malcolm had sat and talked. And mm-hmm. they were friends of, like, um, and he had pictures. They had pictures, just casual pictures of him mm-hmm. and Grace with Ossie Davis and Ruby D. And you're going like, yeah. you know, and they're just like, like you said, it's not, but to collect those and to have those in a space. I mean, that's just like, yes. you know. Oh, yeah. No, definitely. I, I, well, I'm glad you brought up Asi, Asi and Ruby because their papers were recently acquired by the Schomburg Center. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so inside the Schomburg Center, for, so for basically the history of the Schomburg Center started as a collection. It was purchased, um, a collection of Arturo Schomburg, who was a scholar and a bibliophile. And he was mm-hmm. a Puerto Rican man who, there are two stories, apocryphal stories that people tell that when he was younger in school in Puerto Rico that he was told there was no such thing as black history. The other story is, is that there was, when he was in his teens or middle school, that there, were, there was an Italian club and a Spanish club and a German club, but there wasn't an African club. And mm-hmm. so this allegedly, these stories, probably parts of the truth here and there, um, developed in him a desire to collect materials that proved that not only Africans had a history, but throughout the diaspora. So he was collecting all kinds of books. Uh, posters, broadsides, um, material around slavery, the transatlantic slave trade, abolition in the U.S., but in the Caribbean as well, 
independence movement. Well, no, he didn't live to do the independence movement, but he had a lot of things. And so I guess if I remember right in Brooklyn, his house was just filled with all the stuff he was collecting. And around this time, people weren't checking for black folks. They weren't checking for black history. <laughs> they weren't checking for the uh-huh, things that we uh-huh. were producing or the material produced about us. So he bought a lot of this stuff and he sold it to the New York Public Library in 1926. And it became a part of their, um, the 135th Street Branch Library record. So it, the collection was installed there in 1926 and 19. 19- 32, he came back as curator of that collection. He had left and did some traveling and some other work. And in that same building in the basement in 1940, uh, the American Negro Theater began, was, um, was created. And so Alice Childress, Ruby Dean, I see Davis, Sidney Poitier, Harry Belafonte, mm-hmm. um, Frederick O'Neill, and a number of other people who you've seen in movies here and there, what have you, began a serious theater where there was training, there were um, full-fledged productions and so forth, and it was just really wonderful. So having Ruby and Ossie's papers at the Schomburg is really special. um, They also have Ellis Children's papers, another playwright, Mm -hmm. talented woman, who I thought her name should be Children when I was seven. (laughs) And... um, you know, and other people who um, came there. So the, the Schomburg, and, and so that building lasted until about 1972 until the New Public Library designated the Schomburg collection as a, um, a research center rather than simply a, um, a branch. And so they mm-hmm. built a building in 1980, and they continued building on that building and doing renovations throughout the years to connect both that library and that building. So what you have when you go in, you'll see um, the Langston Hughes Lobby, which connects the landmark building, is what they call it, the formerly the 135th Street Branch Library, to the new building. And when you walk in, and what they call the Langston Hughes Lobby is where his ashes have been interred huh. in the floor huh. under a really wonderful, um, a wonderful art display called um, Rivers. And on, in the rivers, it's by Conway Houston, in rivers, the actual art piece, are parts of Langston Hughes' poem, um, uh, The Negro Speaks of Rivers. And it's so beautiful. So you can see some of it online. So if your listeners want to go online there, there are pictures of this wonderful cosmogram that show wow. all these different rivers and so forth. The place is, is built and imbued with such a wonderful history, a counter-narrative, actually, to what we've been taught as people of African descent in this country and other countries, that black people didn't contribute to culture, didn't contribute to history, and so forth. It's one of the places on earth that's really a global center for black intellectual thought, black in the uh, Gwendolyn Brooks sense, black that connects Uh with every person from Africa, right? So I love it that Ruby D and Ossie Davis's papers are there. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, and to have their papers there and the things that they saw coming on, you know, and like you said, if we don't have archives, if we don't keep these, you know, these things, and sometimes you might not recognize the importance of it, but there's mm-hmm. glimpses and bits of our history that wasn't recorded you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, but it's it's somebody's pictures, it's somebody's journals, it's it's someone yes. doing that. 
Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no. So tell me a little bit more about your, your, your comment because I, I want to make sure I know where you're going. Oh no! I want to. I want to go from that. Like, okay, you you said that usually our archivist is also like maybe they've got something else going on. Okay, but yes, what is if someone was going like, well, am I an archivist? What what if anybody can can start to archive things? And what would you say to them? And what's important that as, okay. you know we spread out and. Grandma, and this one might be here, and you're losing these stories, you're losing mm-hmm. these things. So what's important that people, that you would say to our community, our African-American oh, community, okay. and even to our queer African-American community that we oh, need yeah, to be yeah. grabbing hold of? Okay, so I would say to our various black communities that the lay, for the layperson, you want to hold on to those very unique, rare documents and materials and photographs that tell the story of your family. No matter how big, no matter how small, if they're digital, it doesn't matter. Make sure that you hold on to that material because it's telling you something about who, where you came from, who you are, where you've been, and it, they, the documents by themselves may not tell you much. So, for example, if you have a birth certificate of your mom, you'll find out where she was born, who her parents were, or parent, um, you know, how, you know, what city, what county, and all that, the date of birth, and it'll be, you know, stamped with the county seal and so forth. She's taken together with a DNA test, taken together with a diary, a journal, taken together with photographs, they begin to develop and show a different kind of story. Taken together with oral histories, you might you might um, conduct with older relatives about who your mother was or who she is, and you know you keep going back and further and further back because one of the things that challenges people of African descent in this country who've been enslaved is that you run into that period just before, just after um, emancipation. Well, let's just say 1870s with one. Um, one genealogist told me that people, it, they can't find relatives after that, but there are creative ways to find those people. And I would say it's worth your time. It's worth your time more than you think to do those explorations, to search plantation records, to listen to stories by your elder folk who may have held onto a scrap of a story that later on you might find the tail of the animal and then it scurries around the corner and you can find a little bit more if you do more digging based on reading black genealogy books or going to different workshops where you can find out things. You know, the um, Ancestry.com is free at a lot of public libraries where you can do the census records. And Ancestry.com contains military records, yearbooks, a number of things that they're scanning, obviously death and birth and death records and these kinds of things. So this is really, it's, it's, the, it's one of the best stories you could ever read or experience is the one that, can't, that you are, <laughs> mm-hmm. that, that shares your family history. Even if they're absences or people you don't know, it's still worth your time to do that kind of research. It grounds you in a way that nothing else in this world can. And so I would recommend people, you know, collecting the materials, 
putting them in a safe place, but prior to that, maybe making copies of them so they can retire the really precious ones that they can't get anywhere else so that they have to go back to the county or the vital statistics um, uh, area uh, and try to find this stuff, to get digital copies, to make those available, and to have to do the oral histories with their older relatives and friends of relatives that have passed on that might be able to provide you with um, not just the, the vitals and where this person went to school and all that, but they might mention, hey, this person was sick for about a year and she had this or whatever, or that's what they told me. These stories matter, and mm. they give you – they're so nutritious, even the painful ones, even the painful ones, because at least you know. At least you know um, what happened. And so I'm, I'm, this is what I call the memory work. It's part of – the memory work for me is black folks in this country and in other countries, we were futurists, we were modernists, we had to get to the future because the present was so freaking terrible. We were thinking about schools and we're thinking about building all black towns and all these other things, and some of that happened. And when you learn about what happened to those towns and what happened to those efforts, you better understand the structure of the United States, politically, socially, economically, and so forth, because you have examples in your own families or also in the books and the, and the articles written about it. You get a better sense of the moment you're in. And so memory is, is a wonderful thing. Yes, it hurts to remember these things, but it's also important because it 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 blossom it blooms in your life in a way that I think is really powerful and meaningful. It connects you to um, everything in ways that the culture, the capitalist culture that we're in, constantly uh -huh. wants you to simply buy your worth, to buy what it is, you know, buy your your um, who you are, and you're already something, you're already something wonderful. But it's up to you to do that work to find out. Mm -hmm. You know. Before I go on to something else, you know what else what, 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 what people don't do? I had an aunt who died at 94. She mm -hmm. kept obituaries. Oh, yeah, you know, yes. She went to everybody's yes. funeral, and <laughs> she had this box full of obituaries. But like yes. you said, it was like, well, who is this? Who is that? Yes. And it's like, you know, we had a cousin who did this and that. And like you said, even to like so-and-so died a death of this and that. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, like you said, and to gather those people, and I think that one of the things that I also did with her was, like, some of these pictures was like, well, who is that? And I wrote on the back of it who that person mm -hmm. was yes. because once she was gone, who's going to know, you know? Who would know? Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. and, and so thank you for saying that. So some of the interesting habits of black folk <laughs> over the last mm -hmm. couple of uh, centuries has been to document themselves, right? Mm -hmm. Either documenting themselves through photographs, there's a wonderful film, um, Through the Lens Darkly, by Thomas Allen Harris. It features Deborah Willis, who is the, um, the premier historian when it comes to black photography and black, um, black phot photographers. And in the film, you see how black people took the medium of photography seriously because of when it, when it was coming into, um, coming into um, to practice, you know, the origins of it was around the time of the Civil War, shortly before the Civil War, and it meant something. The most photographed man in America, man in America at the time was Frederick Douglass. 
Mm-hmm. And it mm-hmm. helped him, and it was a way to market him and a way to put his face out there for the work that the abolitionist work that he was doing. But also, families had $3, but they got that photograph, <laughs> and they sat there mm-hmm. with, looking stern at the camera. You know. <laughs> I would recommend that film a lot because it tells us a lot about, um, like I said, how we've documented ourselves. There, are also, there was also a tendency for as well as the obituaries, but to cut out death notices in the paper. Sometimes those notices would go into scrapbooks and many scrapbooks. There is a man by the name of Alexander Gumby who is not a block, left, less, um, about a block and a half away from where I'm sitting right now in Harlem. And this man on, at Fifth Avenue between 131st and 132nd decided that he, just, that he was going to um, open us a line he had these serious scrapbooks. There are like three of them, 300 of them that are now in, um, at Columbia University. Alexander Gumby was African-American gay male who held a salon who decided that he was interested in black history. Now, we were always writing books. We were writing books while we were enslaved, okay? So after uh-huh. that, there was an explosion of people writing books on all kinds of different things, the military, their personal narratives, all of it. But what he did was he had all these newspapers and magazines, and he cut out these articles. So he had, uh, and it's just off the top of my head, he had scrapbooks on boxing, on leaders, you know, African-American leaders, um, sports, well, sports, boxing, African-American leaders, musicians, authors, and so forth. Um, so folks would come to his salon, like Zora Neale Hurston, Langston Hughes, County Cullen, the um, – the Negro, was it Nigarati, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. would come. And, you know, so he was a part of that scrapbooking moment. There are dozens of scrapbooks at the Schomburg Center as well for people who just had an interest. It was almost like they were creating their own newspapers and their own magazines to read. It fascinates me. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it so much. Um, but we, are, we were documenting ourselves. There is, and, and, and this extends across the pond to, over to England. So folks who left the Caribbean, a lot of Jamaicans who came, who went to England after World War II to clean up after the war, so to speak, those folks would, send, would go to a photographer there, several photographers there, and it was a way to kind of show the people back on the mainland, I mean, in, in their homes, in their countries, that they were doing well. Mm-hmm. So they would take pictures. And so their exhibits, I wish I remember the photographer's name, but you would see year after year he had photographs of the same family <laughs> coming in to take a picture to send back home. And the styles changed over the years and the poses changed, but the, but the, the main reason why they were doing it, as I was told, and I, I could totally you know, believe it, was to keep those connections mm-hmm. and to make sure that they knew we were okay. And don't forget us. <laughs> it was a way mm-hmm. to keep in touch. You know, and so yeah. we're very people of African descent are pretty clear about documenting documenting themselves. I think because of the digital age, people are some might think, oh, we don't need the paper stuff anymore because we have digital life. We're not really. We're looking at social media. We're doing it now with social media. And mm-hmm. one thing that black folks can do, we can talk, and we hold <laughs> stories, and we hold narrative. And I'm running my mouth as you can see right now mm-hmm. <laughs> with stories and so forth, and it's. We build, narrative builds meaning in our lives. It helps us think of things. It helps us you know, solve problems and imagine something better. And it's, 
where part of, part of that storytelling process is documenting ourselves. And it's really good work. It's the best work you can do to me as far as, as, far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. Now, you're also, you're also right. And you wrote mm-hmm. Black Gay Genius Answering Joseph Beam's Call. Yes. What, yes. what moved you to do that work? So Black Gay Genius is the brainchild of Charles Stevens, who is the executive director of the Counter Narrative Project in Atlanta, which is, I believe, the only national advocacy organization for black gay men. Charles came to me with the idea to honor Joseph Beam, who, for just quickly to tell you who he is, Joseph Beam mm-hmm. uh, was born in 1954 in Philadelphia to Dorothy and Sunbeam. His father was named Sunbeam. That's the best thing ever. <laughs> So uh-huh, uh-huh. Joe is an African-American um, gay man who decided um, – he was a journalist, and he also one day um, had reached out to Barbara Smith, another wonderful black lesbian writer who was one of the founders of Kitchen Table Press, and Audre uh-huh. Lorde, who was also one of the founders of Kitchen Table Press, uh, about an anthology. At that point, black lesbians had, had um, preceded black gay men – with a literary tradition that articulated one. So it wasn't just like the Harlem Renaissance. We're talking about some women and men who would say, I'm gay, I'm a lesbian, right? So he Uh reached out to them too and said, I'm interested in doing an anthology. And they gave him some good advice and kept in touch with them throughout the process of him developing the call for submissions and going, you know, and editing, um, selecting the pieces that would go into what became In the Life, a black gay anthology, the first black gay anthology in 19 published in 1986 by Allison Publications. Joe Beam also worked for the National Coalition of Black Lesbians and Gays, founded in 1979 in D.C., and he worked as an editor for their, um, their journal called Blackout. And he died, I think, three or four days before his 34th birthday. Mm. And he... Um, so he... he Unlike Essex Hemphill or a number of other people who lived longer than Joe, he wasn't as well-known as some of these other men and women who continued to publish more and to appear in documentaries and so forth. And so in the life meant a lot to me growing up as a kid. I, my friend got copies, uh, photocopies of some of the um, poems and essays in the book and from a library in Cleveland and gave them to me. And I remember being like 18 or 19, I think 20. I was 20 and I was so excited by it. I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And so had going, coming to the Schomburg later to find out that his papers were there were really tore me up. Um, and mm-hmm. I was just so excited to see what his papers entailed. And the reason why his papers are there were because of his mama, Dorothy B. Mm-hmm. Dorothy Saunders Beam, who just passed away um, December 26, 2018. And so very briefly, the story behind that is that Dorothy Beam, when Joe died, she said that she was really obviously hurt that her only son had passed, but that she felt called to, to become a gay activist and an HIV and AIDS activist. <laughs> She moved Essex and Phil into her house to finish the book that Joe was working on at the time of his death, which became Brother to Brother, 
New Writings by Black uh-huh. Gay Men. When they finished that book, she donated Joe's papers to the Schomburg, and her aim was that she wanted to make sure his legacy wasn't lost, and it will not be. And so when uh-huh. Charles came to me with the, this idea for the anthology, I was really busy, and I said I didn't, didn't really have time to do it. And then we worked on some things together, and eventually we put up the – I think the call for submission went out a year or two years later. So it was like 2011 or 12. And we got some amazing <laughs> contributions. So the book is set up in a way where you can look – people who knew Joe talked about Joe. There were people who were inspired by In the Life. There were people who were following in similar footsteps as Joe was, doing amazing work. There was this um, chapter we call Queer Relative, named after a, um, an essay by Alexis Pauline Gums, My Arc of a Soulmate, who's a wonderful uh-huh. um, thinker and just does amazing stuff herself. But so what you get in the book is you get a slice of Joe, and you get and we honor Joe and love him and want to honor his call. And the call, answering the call was, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing for somebody else? What are you doing to capture our history? What are you doing to facilitate the voices of men and women and trans folk? What are you doing to make sure that our history is here and that we have a voice, a public voice? And so the book came out in 2014, and we had a wonderful um, a wonderful book launch at the Schomburg Center where a lot of the contributors came and read from, a little from their pieces. And we were just super, super, super stoked that people wanted to know more about Joe or felt the same way we did. We felt like he needed to be hugged. He, he needed to be honored for his work. And so with this book being out, folks ain't going to forget. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I remember when the book came out. Actually, I was in Chicago, and I was at a, this some kind of party, you know, it was, uh, and people were talking about it and we were, and this guy was talking about this book and, and talking about how, you know, how important it was. And interestingly, there were a number of gay men there who said, who were like, oh, because if you ask them who had influenced them and they said, oh, well, you know, I read Audre Lorde and, you know, she helped right. me come out and, and I mean, they named all these lesbians and here this guy was like, no, Joe Bean, you need to read this. Joe Bean, yeah. And it, and it's funny, like you said, that there were all of, there was this lesbian culture um, that that talked about being gay. A literary culture, but, yes, absolutely, and yeah, an activist I mean, culture, this, which is really critical for black gay mm-hmm. men, absolutely. Exactly. In fact, I know I talked to this one guy, and he said that after a while, his lesbian friends, first of all, they recognized that he was gay before he did, and finally, they told him, <laughs> oh, "Look, you know, he was following them around." He said, "They said, you know, look, you need to go find your own tribe, okay? You know, go word, you know, go, word, <laughs> word. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you you really need to go and find your own tribe and go and, and you know uh, because yeah, you know, it was good that it brought him out, but he needed to go and find gay men, black gay yep. men, and he was one of the ones who was at this, and he was like, it was like he had found." this book, and, and it was like, I'm going to do some more research about it. And, I, and this is somebody who I consider, you know, well, you seem to know a lot about a lot of things. How didn't you? He said because his coming out process had come out through a, a black lesbian community. Word, word, amazing. And that makes a lot of sense to me. That's, that's I won't say that was my experience. I had the 
benefit of learning about SXM Phil and Joe Beam and Asado Saint and other people, because once I got my hands on those um, photocopies of poems and essays, mm-hmm. I went looking for more. And I, had to go, I went to the library. I remember going to a bookstore to order um, SXM Phil's ceremonies book. And it was, you know, in and out of the closet at the same time, but I needed that. I needed that work. And so that largely, it's interesting because those materials that I was getting through the mail ended up becoming the, um, the, the, the basis for the In the Life Archive at the Schomburg, um, formerly known as the Black Gay and Lesbian Archive. And that project mm-hmm. came together in 1999, a year after I went to the Schomburg, and I asked my boss at the time, would it be okay if I began this archive? And she was like, sure. So I brought some, my stuff in and kept some of my stuff, gave them some of the stuff. What I learned is that the Schomburg had a lot of black, gay, and lesbian material already in books. They had the Joseph Bean Papers, the Other Countries Records, which is a writing collective founded in 1986 in New York City. They had the, um, there was a gentleman who knew Elaine Locke by the name of Glenn Carrington. They had his papers there, and he was a gay man as well. And so they had, they, they were collecting materials. And I think what archives do, which I think is really important, is that they will find, they might hire somebody who has an interest in a particular field, and then that, that person would go out and do that collecting, right? Because they have an interest, they know the individuals, the organizations, they're the ones keeping their eye out for the kind of material. And that, that was me at the Schomburg, and I had the best support ever through, from top down. I never had a problem at the Schomburg when it came to collecting materials. They were very generous with their time and understood already that they were collecting black culture. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't, no, not that black culture, this black culture. It wasn't elitist and it wasn't um, classist and any of that. It was, we, we're collecting for the ages mm-hmm. <laughs> and not for our personalities, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. You know, we have... As black people, we have this complicated uh, relationship with our people, you know, and yes, where, yes. where there'd be many people who want to talk, to celebrate black history, but when you want to talk about, you know, we have to remind them, you know, we've always been there, you know, we're, oh, we're right there, and our history is a part of it. Do you ever feel yes. that kind of pushback, or does it ever make it difficult for you, where you to, to find that? you know, to find these, these records about these people because of this complicated relationship we have with ourselves? Well, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to answer that question because I started collecting materials for people who were already out. So the organizations mm. and the individuals, this is easy. So this isn't... Um, this wasn't hard to do. If it was mass-produced or even if it was a part of someone's papers, they made that choice to publicly be queer, right, for, to mm-hmm. collapse all those terms. And so I'm trying to think. There were people who, <laughs> when I was at the Schomburg, there were people who I met who were, um, weren't sure that I could do anything else but collect black queer stuff. There were at least two occasions that, it, that happened that I know about um, but these were outsiders, right? And they had no um, real say in anything that we were doing as a repository for black thought and meaning. So um, 
I run into that person every now and then outside the institution. But for the most part, again, it was divine that I was there because I knew individuals and organizations, and I positioned myself as a conduit for the Schoenberg, for, that, for the institution to give it that profile, to help build that profile around it being a space where all histories were being collected, you know, for those people. And, it, and the, the difference here is this. A good example would be, so I was working with another colleague of mine, Lila Sue Williams at the time, who's no longer there. She was building a hip-hop archive. And around mm-hmm. the time I was building the Black and Lesbian Archive, which is what it was called then, and I noticed the differences between the way um, individuals from each community and sometimes cross-communities, you know, intersecting communities, responded to the archival initiatives. So where hip-hop had been... I guess it had turned 40 around the time that we started um, in earnest collecting this kind of material. And we met a lot of people who were founders and practitioners and producers and so forth. And the response wasn't as enthusiastic as it was for my black gay LGBTQ folk, you know, who who came in. They were much more, um, wow, I'd love to donate these things or my book or my papers. Thank you very much for asking. Because at that point, and it's still right now, it depends on where you are in the country, in the world, I guess, uh, whether or not queerness is accepted, you know. Or, mm-hmm. um, and so, so I had a really wonderful experience because, because with, hip, with the folks who were hip-hop, and not everyone was mean and, or suspect of the institution's, um, institution's aims, but the people that I did meet who were those very things were a little aggressive, and they had been told that they mattered in a way <laughs> that black LGBTQ folk hadn't. You know, it wasn't a socially or mat, or it wasn't a socially acceptable thing for everyone. Hip-hop had been ordained a movement, you know, mm-hmm. so we were still um, talking to ourselves and still fighting for rights and still dealing with hate crimes and all these other things. And part of the profile of having their papers at the Schomburg or part of going into the Schomburg where they could see an exhibition focusing on a lesbian woman or focusing or a program where we talked about and showcased films and had a book club and so forth, this, it, it was like going home, you know. It was a, way, a place that said, oh, there is a, there's a place for me here, uh-huh. you know. And that's a very wonderful and significant thing coming out of the black power movements, which a lot of these earlier men and women who were, were inspired by to start our own, to do our own work, to make our voices heard, to amplify them. And so I consider myself in that, um, in that lineage, right, just doing mm-hmm. my part to make sure that that stuff is there for the ages. So, yeah. Yeah, because, you know, as you stop and you think about it, because often you'll go and people will be talking about movement and this and that, and then mm-hmm. that, 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 I mean, how many people don't know about Bayard Rustin, you know, who are just, and now the kids are discovering it, and they're going like, wow, you know. And there are so many people throughout history who mm-hmm. were, and to, and, you would also want to think that for future generations, because I always tell people right. there's a gay kid born every minute, you know, 
And oh, yeah. Little, yeah. Little, little black Michelle or little black Stephen, I want them to know both sides. I want them to be able to go someplace and see all of this. And, and that's what I think that's so wonderful about the work that you do, that you're, you're saving it so that when they go and they look at, like, the Harlem Renaissance, yeah, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. here is here is somebody. When they go and look at these family pictures, and here is someone, and, and and it's two gay men, and and the genius of someone like like Joe Bean, and, right, and all of these right. ways. So to make it to make it easier, you know, we oh, always yeah, want to no. say that it, we always want to say it gets better, but it doesn't get better in part if you don't know your history. Absolutely, you know, and, absolutely. And who's, well said. Whose shoulders you're standing on? So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and as, like you, I want all those children who know or have a sense of what their sexuality is, but also those who are questioning it to have a place to go to learn to, to, and, and I think our, our jobs are the different jobs that we have in terms of passing down information to generations, but also sometimes advancing, I mean, you know, sharing it with our elders. And that Mm -hmm. is, you can make the material available, Right. And it's like not, you know, I, I'm trying to think of a better thing, but when people say you can't lead a horse to water, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Mm-hmm. I want folks to know that along with the Schomburg and other institutions that collect this material, it's there for you. And don't feel intimidated by an institution. Go in. Your taxes pay for this. You have a right to this information. And it's very nutritious and it's very information. You know, it's full of information that you may need, you know, literally to save your life. You know, mm-hmm. and so I'm very interested in being a part of a coalition of people, a conduit to to help keep putting down that history, and also arming people with information where they can do oral histories. They can track themselves, for example, tell their own stories. You know, there are all kinds of different ways you can do this. You can do it yourself on your phone, have it transcribed, keep the um, material, keep the digital um, copy of it. Go to StoryCorps. StoryCorps is um, a national oral history project. And, you know, they uh-huh. do um, sometimes, I think, I don't know if they still do it on NPR, but on Fridays they would show Oh, yeah, they do. <laughs> yeah, so wonderful, right? So for those of you who don't know StoryCorps, go to storycorps.org and find out more about their, um, what they do. And really, really, like, take it to heart that your story matters. This is what we're talking about here. If it wasn't for Joe Beam's mom, we wouldn't have Joe's papers. She said in an interview that people told her to throw that stuff away. She not only did not throw it away, she helped finish her son's second book and turned over his papers to the library. So this woman is like an unofficial uh, mother of the movement to me, Mm -hmm. along with other mothers and other fathers we know nothing about who just did that one little thing or two little thing to kind of push it forward. That's all. That's, 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 that's amazing to me, and I love it, mm-hmm. and I'm inspired by it and motivated by it So, to yeah. do my work. Mm-hmm. Now, you've written two other books, and I'm going to tell you, um, after Fire and Ink was here in Detroit, I think like the following year, I had gone up to Ann Arbor to this thing, and here was this young lesbian who had just discovered this book <laughs> and was Unless your mama no, and if I would be a black woman, yes. and I, and I immediately contacted Lisa and said, 
this young lesbian, she's just coming out, and she was her first year in college, and this is like a year ago. And what she's mm-hmm. holding in that in her hand is this book. You also co-edited a book on Carry the Word, a bibliography of black LGBTQ books. I yes. mean, how important is it? I mean, and, and how good does it make you feel to know that you don't have to know who is that young gay or lesbian kid who picks this book up and it helps them and they're coming out. But how important was it to you to put together this bibliography of black mm-hmm. LGBTQ books so they've got a roadmap to go and find what to read? Right, right, right. That, that's just, I love hearing that. I love hearing that. I believe, I want to say, I think it's Lisa C. Moore's brainchild. And I think we decided mm-hmm. to publish it together so that all the proceeds would go to Benefit Fire and Inc. at that time. But we knew about all these different books, and we constantly were being told there are no black and lesbian authors. And this is like two, 2005 or six when we started the project. It was published in 2007, and along with Reginald Harris, who is an um, administrator and an amazing poet who works at Poets House in New York City. Lisa Seymour is the publisher of Redbone Press. Um, she is the largest black, and, black gay and lesbian press in existence today. <laughs> and okay. I believe most of, not all of her books are in print, with the exception of Carry the Word, um, and we need to update it. It's been, a, wow, it's been over 10 years since we published it. And it was important for us to not only have the books themselves, and their ISBN numbers, but also to include interviews with current authors. And we had two, um, we had ad space in the back so for publishers and for writers to um, put ads in it. And it's, it's a really unique document. It's in a lot of libraries around the U.S. And we're excited about that. But it answered the question. It's like, no, there is an amazing history um, of black literature, black queer literature, fiction, nonfiction, poetry, essay, you know, all kinds of things, you know, academic books. Um, and it's, it's, it's not a secret. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And so sometimes it's interesting. You can live in a particular culture and just assume that everybody knows what you know. And, you know, no. <laughs> There's always people mm-hmm. being born, that people who don't come across these things. And I'm, I know I, it, Lisa and I and Reginald, Reginald Harris, um, who also was a compiler, we were just excited by the process, and a wonderful poet and minister, excuse me, and a deacon, Marvin K. White, came up with the name, Carry the Word. And we knew he'd come with the language because he is my favorite poet, <laughs> and he came with it. Okay. We said, we need a title, we need a title. Carry the Word. We're carrying these words. We're holding these words. And again, like I said earlier, we want to make sure the stuff is here so that when people come looking for it, it's there, you know. We're futurists in that sense because we know the power of the word to transform to how, what it did for us as writers, as publishers, as thinkers, and continues to do for us. And, it, you know, we see it as responsibility. You know, again, I like what Toni Morrison said once in the interview. She said she doesn't want to die and have her ancestors look at her and go, what did you do? Uh-huh. What did you do to make somebody's life better? What did you do? You know, and she goes, I don't want to face them. <laughs> and I ain't done nothing. <laughs> so, word. Okay, well, well, we're going to take our second break, and um, we'll be right back. If you're just joining us, 
well, I'm talking with Stephen Fullwood. He is an archivist. He's an author. <laughs> he's a photographer. And we'll be right back. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. back here on Collections by Michelle Brown. You know, have people, I mean, not know about black authors. And, you know, the other thing that gets me is like, okay, fire and ink. Mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. I have talked to some people like, well, what's that? And I'm going like, you don't know what fire and ink is? And there are so <laughs> many. I mean, I walked into fire and ink and it was like old home week. I mean, there was Aud- mm-hmm. uh, Andrea Jenkins. There was Alexis Pauline Gums. I mean, I got to sit next to Jewel Gomez, you know, which was my yes. my own personal moment. I mean, you know, I mean, there was <laughs> Eric Darnell Pritchard, you know, I mean, there are all of these yes. great, amazing authors and people who are doing really great work. Yesterday, I was at a thing with uh, Adrienne Marie Brown, and mm-hmm. um, her new book just came out, and it was like, you know, riveting. And I'm going like, how do you not know about these amazing people who are out here, and how do you not know about fire and ink. So, you know, I've been proselytizing people. You know, proselytizing, you know, you go, yeah. Go, go online, look at it. They don't do it every year, but you need to, you need to, to check it out. Yeah, so Fire and Ink mm-hmm. is a writer's festival that, ha- that brings together writers of all kinds as well as performers um, who – identify as black LGBTQ people. It was founded in 2000, or actually I think in 1999, with a number of people, Samia Bashir, I think Jim Winston James, and at the head was Lisa Seymour. Their first convening conference happened in 2002 in Chicago, and it was an amazing event. So you're, you're, you're looking at, like you, Michelle, I have my geek out moments with Cheryl Clark, mm-hmm. Samuel Delaney, <laughs> Robert Reed Farr, you know, these people who made a substantial contribution to letters, and there they are. And they're just sitting there like everybody else, you know, to let, put on their pants one leg at a time like everybody else. Uh-huh. But for me, they were glowing, and I was just so excited to meet them. And I became a part of Farnings board over the years. And so I think there were at least four times that they've met uh, 2002 in Chicago, 2005 in Austin, 2009 in Austin, and 2015 in Detroit. And between those times, we've fundraised for the organization, uh, put people in touch with one another. We have a very robust Fire and Ink Facebook page where we are constantly sort of just informing people, putting articles out, 
call for submissions and other kinds of things that relate to the black LGBT community. And a lot of relationships and friendships were forged there. There were a number of publishers who came, uh, black world publishers who, you know, showed their books and what had, and it was always multi-generational, always Uh multi-generational. And there was nothing like it. There was nothing like Fire and Ink. And so, yeah, yeah, I'd recommend you find out more about it, folks. (laughs) That's right. So, I mean, we're we're in our last sketch here, and I couldn't, you know, go without what one of the things that you're doing now, which mm-hmm. I like, the Nomadic Archivist Project. Yeah. And, yes. you know, tell us about how that came about. Um, sure. And, and what exactly are you doing with this? Okay. Okay. So and the I like Nomadic Archivist. The, the, the acronym is NAP. <laughs> <laughs> I love it too because I love taking NAP. Um, uh-huh. So. The Nomadic Archivist Project is the brainchild, yet of someone else again, of Miranda Mims, who is a librarian and archivist at the University of Rochester. Miranda and I met in 2010 when she became an archivist at the Schomburg Center for Research of Black Culture. Miranda and I became friends. We worked on projects together. Um, she came up with the idea to, to promote the In the Life Archive through a series of programs called Ordinary People. So we, we invited writers of all kinds, and we also um, had a book club where we read Giovanni's Room and A Bang by Michelle Cliff, to name two, and also had films like the Samuel Delaney documentary. Uh, Tiona McLaughlin, a filmmaker, and Lisa Seymour were working on a documentary called The Untitled Black Lesbian Elder Project. So they showed clips of that film. We showed... Um, uh, gosh, there's so many things that we showed. Rodney Evans, filmmaker for Brother to Brother, came in and showed uh, his thesis film and some of his shorts. We had a Marlon Riggs retrospective there. So we had things going on for a couple of months. It was really amazing and wonderful. Miranda is, if, if your house is in disarray, she can come in and give you the space you need. <laughs> she will organize your furniture, give you tips on <laughs> storage thing. She's Miranda Mims. So Miranda Mims, I, when I left the Schomburg in 2017 to pursue, I'm interested in filmmaking. So um, I wanted to do that. I had been there for 19 years, three months and 24 days. And it had, it was like being in college forever. And I loved it because I was constantly learning things about the diaspora and in a variety of formats and from a variety of people. It was just the best job I could have ever had in my life. I love it. And so Miranda left the Schomburg shortly after I did to move back to Rochester where her parents are and to take a job at the University of Rochester. She um, brought the idea up to me, I think, in 2017 in November and said we should do something together. And so we, we sat down and we talked about the kind of work that the Schomburg does and other kinds of um, advocacy organizations where people um, – where, where archivists work directly with individuals and organizations to help them decide what they want to do with their archives, whether or not they want to donate them or sell them to a repository such as a college or university library, a standalone archives, or a public library like the Schomburg, or build their own archives. We knew that we had amassed between us an amazing amount of experience and love for our community, and so we knew that – as nomadic archivists, we could do this work together. 
And so we came up with the, the name, Nomadic Archivist. Nomadic, no matter where you go, we can go there mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, you know, kind of work with you. And our first major project, which we'll, um, we're in progress with it now, is the Black uh, Podcast Project. And we're collecting podcasts of a social justice and creative nature, of, um, of a creative nature. And so we've collected so far, I believe, I'm going to say somewhere in 20 to 30 of them so far, um, a podcast so that we can, we're, we're the, essentially the vectors. We're the people who collect the material but donate them to a library. And these uh-huh. particular podcasts are going to be donated to the Auburn Avenue Research Library on African-American Culture and History at the Atlanta Fulton Public Library in July 2019. So we're very excited about that because that means these podcasts will live at a library. <laughs> they will be saved forever and they will be made available to the public. And so this is um, the project was sponsored by the Society of American Archivists, and it's been a wonderful experience not only listening to different podcasts but also seeing the diversity of those podcasts and because it's such an ephemeral or could be an ephemeral um, kind of material that we were worried that it was going to, people were just going to do their podcast, leave them on whatever um, – platform, SoundCloud, iTunes, or whatever, and never deal with them again. And we want to make mm-hmm. sure that we're capturing this moment because it's, it's history in the making, essentially. Sometimes with archives, or people think of history as being a decade ago, three decades ago, you know, and so forth, but no, history is happening all the time. And so this is our first project. We're really super excited about it. And if you're a black podcaster, please contact, contact us. Our URL is nomadic archivist, plural, archivist, project.com and you'll mm-hmm. see a little you'll learn a little bit about us you'll learn a little bit about our projects and um, we'd love to hear from you mm-hmm. you know you just said something that okay earlier you had talked about you know you're going all around looking for this guy because you want to work at the Schomburg and you find yes. him 19 yes. some odd years later <laughs> How how did you how did you leave that? I mean, you talk about it. I mean, there's a passion that you can tell you loved that job. You loved what you were doing. Oh yeah. And you know, you you wanted that job. I mean, you were you were conference stalking this guy. You know, conference stalking. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, to to get in there. How did you decide that you know it's time? And how did you? And did you did you change the date when you were going to leave in, or did you say this is it? It's time. It's time for me to go on and do the next thing. Well, I'm going to get a bit personal here because I think it's mm-hmm. important to kind of to really capture what I was feeling and what I was thinking at the time. I um, always wanted to be a filmmaker, but I was terrified of doing it. And I've always, so I've always done things in relation, as, as this talk sort of demonstrates, that when I was at the, the Schomburg, I was also working and publishing books or working with Fire and Ink or doing other things. But I think it's, so my brother, my only brother, who died at the age of 48, um, had a series of, a series of strokes in 2011 and continued up until his death in 2016. And for that, during the time when he was sick, um, it was obviously really stressful for our family, but obviously very stressful for him. 
And his name is Daryl. I love him a lot. He has three children. And I, right now he has four grandchildren. And mm-hmm. he was just the nicest person on earth. Very kind, very sweet, born two years after me in 1968. And so as his illness progressed and he was getting sicker and sicker, I became depressed. I was very depressed. I had turned 50 in 2016. And in the May of that year, I was born January 15, 1966. And so had my 50th birthday. And that year was very transformative for me. He died uh, May 20th. 2016 and my heart was broken my heart was had been broken for years and upset by it and I I just got this urgency that I could stay at this job until I retire or I could go out and try my dream Uh (laughs) that I really had nothing to lose and so his death in a way sort of prompted me to go okay well let's look at your options you know and I I a friend of mine told me today a Ugandan man said that you seem to have a lot of interest. <laughs> and I do have a lot uh-huh. of interest. Uh-huh. I'm good at some things. I'm not so good at others. <laughs> but, I, but what I want to do is always um, try. You know, um, I have a wonderful support system, an amazing support system. And, um, yeah, I want to explore things that I couldn't do when I was at the Schomburg because I was working there as an assistant curator. I was running a division, the Manuscripts, Archives, and Red Books division, an amazing division. So, and then when I left, it was interesting because I had a double whammy. My brother passed in 2016. I left in 2017, and then I mourned my um, time at the Schomburg for about a mm. year and a half where I was just missing the daily stuff where you, you know, going in and, and, I had the benefit of seeing African diasporic materials every day. So it was African-American, it was um, South American, Africa, throughout the Caribbean, or wherever black folks went or were taken forcibly. I had my, you know, my mind was on it. It was either somebody requested some material, or we were talking with different scholars, or there was a film, or we were talking about grabbing, you know, um, acquiring some papers. Michelle, I just had the most amazing experience at the Schomburg that will last, that will be with me forever. The people, you know, absolutely. It was one of the hardest things I had to do in my life. Uh-huh. But if I was going to be true to myself, then I had to. Uh-huh. And that's it. That's the story. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that is. I mean, cause, you know, I understand. But you know what? There's on some level that I really understand that. Because, you mm-hmm. know, I had something similar happen, and it was like, you know, mm-hmm. what, are, what, are you, what are you going to, what are you going to do? And you just sort of step right. out on that and do it. You know, you, you have to. Yeah, uh, yeah. I feel you. I'm glad you, you know, you can relate. And again, mm-hmm. I mean, I still get people going, why would you leave a job you loved? You know, and it's like, mm-hmm. do you have about five years for me to tell you? I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in a way, it's very simple. In another way, it's like, you know, it's very complicated, you know, and so, and rich, and it's a rich story. And I'm, I still talk with all my coworkers. I still, um, I'm friends with my former boss, who I, lo- I love and adore, because she chose me. She saw something yeah. in me. And I really, really appreciate going out on faith for me in that way. Um, yeah. So, no, 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 I, I live a very rich life. I'm never bored. 
ever I love ever that. bored. Uh-huh. I love ever it bored. because you know you have one of the, you can have those life changing things, and it also makes you define wealthy. What is richness, and what's the quality of your life? And mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, um, I hear you. I, I definitely you. hear you and feel that richness. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love people, and I love living, so I have mm-hmm. a really good life because <laughs> I'm with people mm-hmm. and, you know, I'm living, you know, and so mm-hmm. I think life is very, very extremely everything at all the time, <laughs> mm-hmm. good, bad, mm-hmm. and different. Sometimes you don't know what it is, if it's good or bad, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, so, but I'm just fortunate that, um, again, that I have an amazing support system. Community means everything to me. Uh-huh. Everything. Uh-huh. I would not exist without it. So. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, Stephen, I want to thank you for spending this time with me. I would love to talk to you again. I mean, thank there's you. so many thank things you. we could talk about. And um, hopefully next time I'm in. That's great. I have really enjoyed it. Um, like I said, thank I you really for feel me. you. I and um, I look forward to talking to you again and to continue our our friendship. And get Thank to know you, you very better. much, Michelle. I appreciate that. I look forward to getting to know you better as well. Okay. All right. Until, until the next time. Okay. You have a good evening. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. I want to thank today's guest, archivist, documentarian, and writer, Stephen G. Fullwood. You can learn more about the Nomadic Archivist Project and its work with Black Podcast Archives at its website, www.nomadicarchivistproject.com. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.